Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and first and foremost on today's show I'm delighted to have Stuart Sugden alongside me. Stuart is the Managing Director and Owner of Sugplum Limited, a firm which offers carbon neutral solutions to the commercial and domestic sectors via a solutions-based service to help cut down on bills and ultimately save money. Um, Stuart, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, yeah, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us, uh, Stuart. Um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But in light of the yep. fact that today's business leaders are going through one of the greatest tests of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, I think it would be yeah, remiss perfect. not to ask you just how that pandemic has affected you and your business operations thus far. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously, it's been uh, very, very strange times for, for everyone, Um for ourselves, um, we basically had to um, furlough all the staff um, and everyone, in effect, was at home. Um, and I basically, myself, covered all the emergency calls, um, any sort of um, issues or um, problems that uh, came around with people's uh, properties or um, businesses. Um, I basically went out and dealt with those myself. Um, so it was back to basics for me, back onto the tools. Um, and yeah, it was um, very strange. Um, obviously, we're, we're sort of now coming back into it. Um, we've got um, 80% of the staff back here now, which is great. Um, we've actually had to change offices um, in order to have a large enough office to allow everyone to properly social socially distance and things so um yeah big changes for us um we're just having to adapt as other people are um and sort of find find our path moving forward and would you say that this experience of crisis management if we call it that has taught you anything in your capacity as a business leader um i well i think first and foremost it teaches you never to take anything for granted um, you know, uh, who would have expected, um, you know, the way things uh, panned out, to be honest. Um, yeah, I mean, we've had to sort of look at the way we do things, um, the, the the guidance for us entering people's property um, has been a little bit of a grey area. So we've had to obviously really be careful that we have been covering ourselves and covering um, the customers' houses that we're working in. So it's... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, we've really learned to sort of uh, adapt and um, do the necessary to, you know, to, to cover ourselves and our staff, basically. Mm. And how has it been from a mental health perspective for the staff working at Sugplum Limited? Because I can imagine there's been a lot of uncertainty and a lot of worry during uh, this time. And that's also something that will have fallen upon your shoulders to manage. Yeah, for sure. It's um it's it's been really difficult um for everyone involved. Um, you know, obviously all the people who work um for us have families and obviously have bills to pay and obviously the, the whole furlough scheme thing um has really helped help that. Um when that was announced obviously that was a great weight off not only my shoulders but um everyone's um, who's involved with the company um, and yeah I guess um, 
we, well, to be honest, I was quite proactive in keeping in touch with the guys um, and, you know, just sort of checking in, letting them know the developments, letting them know my thoughts, um, letting them know where we were, if they needed anything. Um, not only that, but what we actually did was use the time constructively and um, basically um, set up um, some online training um, and um, our renewables manager, Ian, he actually came in um, and prepared sort of um, questions and uh, quizzes for the guys. Um, so we're trying to sort of, you know, keep the guys going and give them something to focus on as well um, and use the time wisely, you know, use the time to get a little bit of extra training for them as well and um, try and learn a wee bit. It's 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 not often that we would manage to have sort of everyone stopped and um, available to do training like that. So um, we've kind of used that time quite quite well, I think, um, which benefited them and us, you know. Mm. It's keeping the communication channels open and essentially leading from a distance, that sort of thing, isn't it? Um, yeah, if, exactly. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And if we sort of touch on leadership just that little bit more broadly, I always like asking guests on this program the question, Stuart, what you feel the role of a leader actually is. If I say the word leader, what does that word actually mean to you? Uh, Leader to me means responsibility. It means um, that your actions are not only um, affecting yourself, but affecting others. Um, It's being conscious that um, your actions will affect others and um, making sure that um, what you do is a positive, um, positive move for everyone involved, um, and you know taking that responsibility and being able to um, take the, the 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 good and the bad, deal with issues um, swiftly and effectively. Um, everyone gets problems, um, you know, regardless what industry you're in. Um, what you're doing, there are always, always going to be issues, but it's how you deal with those issues that makes a big, big difference to me. Um, so you've really got to be quite proactive, I guess, um, in order to sort of lead from the top and also lead by example, you know. Um, I don't think you can ever be scared to get your own hands dirty. I certainly wouldn't ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't do myself, um, you know, and I do like to prove that. Um, to the guys as well um, I think that sort of helps um, you know helps with maybe the, the, the respect side of things as well you know that you are willing to do things yourself you're not just sitting in a warm office and uh, and uh, trolling Facebook or whatever you know I completely understand where you're coming from there because you can command respect and get it onto an equal footing with your employees far more easily if you do show that humility, that willingness to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in as well, especially during a uh, time like this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking about sort of the role of a leader just in a little bit more depth, um, so many people say that a leader's role is also to inspire and invigorate a reaction from people, provide guidance and direction when it's needed. And that's certainly no more the case than it is now with the COVID situation. But when you are an employee and you have a leader to look up to, it's very different to when you're the one in the leadership position and you're at the top of the tree sort of running the show. So when you need a bit of inspiration for yourself, Stuart, I suppose is the point I'm trying to make. Where do you tend to look to for that? Oh, jeez. Um, oh, God, I don't know, really, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, 
I guess um, for myself, I um, I sort of look at others around me. I look at um, you know what what other businesses are doing, how other people are sort of well, especially just now, how how other people are dealing with situations. Um, you know, I, I don't for one minute think that I uh, you know I know better than than everyone else. Um, everyone's got good ideas. Um, and in these strange times, I think that we, you know, we look to other businesses and, and people alike to see how they are dealing with things and sort of learn from their experiences as well as my own. I have quite a good network of different business owners in the area that I do um, sort of keep in touch with and ask how they are getting on and and obviously find out what you know, what they're doing in their particular roles and, and how they're finding things. And especially just now, I find that I have been on the phone a lot more um, speaking to, you know, different companies in the area and just sort of getting their, their sort of uh, feeling and things and, and what they're doing and what they're finding is working for them and obviously sharing my experiences so that we can all sort of benefit together, you know. Networking is a hugely important thing, actually. And for those who are tuning into this that certainly are considering building up a business, it's one of the best things that you can do because it's sort of shooting yourself in the foot, isn't it, Stuart? If you think as a leader, you've got to go into it as a lone wolf and that you can't learn from other people because there are plenty out there in the same boat as you that um, you can learn from. Yes, that's it. And it's that whole reassurance thing as well, I find. Mm. Um, I mean, I started the business just myself and um, I've obviously grown it to uh, the size it is now. And I didn't have those reassurances then. And I did sort of, you know, uh, you know, I didn't have anyone else sort of um, in a management role or anything that I could sort of lean on or run things past. And, and you know, that is where you, you do need uh, a network of, of uh, people like that that you can sort of, you know, run things past and perhaps, um, you know, have ideas and share ideas and, and uh, gain the experience from that and their experience, you know, of, of, of things that they've done or tried or heard of, you know. And um, we talk as well about that key word, learning there, learning from others, but also learning from experience is incredibly important as well. And we've seen during this pandemic just how wonderful a thing hindsight really is. But do you think that yeah. we can really develop in our roles as leaders without trying things, getting things wrong, and then embracing that as a learning curve as and when it comes around? Oh, I think you've always to, uh, you've always to take a risk. You've always to, uh, you know, uh, try new things. And yeah, it is very much part of the learning curve. You know, um, I wouldn't have, you know, managed to do what I've done without making a few mistakes along the way. Um, you know, you do have to learn from these things and it is all part of it, um, you know, and that, that that's how you sort of um, gain your experiences and become better at what you do. You know, um, a lot of a lot of the time, you know, you may, um, you know, hear something from someone else and, and think that that's a great idea, but actually it may not actually work for what you're doing. Um, so... Uh, yeah, there are lots of lots of things that that um, that might be applicable to someone else, but not necessarily you and in your role. And uh, yeah, obviously, like I say, when I mention the risk thing, there, you know, um, sometimes you don't know till you try. You know, and everything has an associated risk, and 
and I guess that has to be calculated to uh, to decide whether whether it's worth trying or not, or you know, and and gain that experience. And thinking now about what's to come over the uh, the next year or so, uh, Stuart, we know that we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working as we grapple with the uh, the new normal and hopefully during that time shrug off the shackles of this pandemic for good. But during that period, yeah. what do you think is next for you and for Sugplum Limited and what are you really hoping to achieve as a business in that time? Well, to be honest, you know, we're really focusing on the renewable energy side of the business just now. Um, obviously, um, we, we've we had uh, a lot of people at home um, who have had a lot of time on their hands. Normally, they would be out working. They wouldn't be using energy in their property. They wouldn't be heating their probably uh, the property probably as much. Um, so people's energy bills have been a lot higher during this time. Um, and obviously, if they've been on furlough, the, the money that they're taking into their family units probably been less. Um, and a lot of people are realising, you know, that there are options out there now, um, especially when it comes to renewables for, you know, heating and powering their homes. Um, so really, we've sort of been focusing on that side of the business and um, sort of trying to promote um, what's available um, out there. Um, the, the, there are interest-free loans available, the renewable heat incentives from the government. Um, you know, there's 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 lots of things out there that a lot of people aren't even aware of. Um, so, you know, we're just trying to sort of make people aware of, of what is available and what can be done. And to be honest, we are seeing um, a, a, a great rise in the inquiries that we're receiving. Um, and, yeah, I'm, we're hoping that that will continue and that will sort of, you know, build the business um, on on that side and, and grow that side of the business more um, as the, the 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 other side, obviously, um, commercially and things like that. The commercial side of the business is is probably quieter just now. As a lot of projects have probably been put on hold and things have maybe been held up and things like that. So um, that's that's where we're focusing and and, and we're seeing. You know, it, it's quite encouraging what we're seeing so far. Yeah, that's certainly good to hear, uh, Stuart. And let's hope there'll be more encouragement on the horizon as well. And given how enlightening it's been having you joining us on the uh, the programme today, I actually think it would be wonderful if in the next few months we could catch up and welcome you back onto the programme just to see how things at the business are coming along over the uh, the next few months. Yeah, I would love that. That would be fantastic. Yeah, no problem at all. No problem. Fantastic, Stuart. It's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us uh, today, uh, for sure. And uh, most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Yes, and yourself and yours. Thank you very much. I was speaking on today's programme to Stuart Sugden, Managing Director and Owner of Sugplum Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, whilst racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become a champion for mental health and charitable concerns, as well as taking up the post of Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew and all of that is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. 
be Chandra, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. 
I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, the privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, 
I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and d- when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. 
Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out 
that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC Andrew wearing re- wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i, I just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.